with delight, gather as your people to fellowship with one another, to share in and delight in our common faith in your Son, the common life that we share by your Spirit, the common hope that we share grounded in the resurrection of Christ and recorded for us in Scripture. We ask now that you would bless us with Not only a clear understanding of our mission in this world, not only encouragement that you give us to go with that command in our mission, but that in all of it we might see it more clearly, your glory in this world and in redemption and strengthen our hope in the the full experience of that redemption that is to come at the end of this age. We thank you for this time that you have ordained. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for this morning. And we offer it to you in the precious and matchless name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And this will be the last time that we say that. This is our last message, God willing, in Matthew chapter 28. In the whole Gospel of Matthew. You know, I just out of curiosity, I went back and I looked this morning. And the first messages in Matthew were in the month of December in 2008. So here we are. Now we've taken a lot of breaks in the meantime and talked about other things, but it's hard to believe that we've now come to the end of this great book of Scripture, and it's been just a joy for me, and I've learned so much, and I hope that it's been a help to you as well. And now we come this morning to the final two verses of this gospel, Matthew chapter 28, Uh, Verses 19 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. A passage that you may even have a little heading in your Bible that says the Great Commission. That's how it is known. It is the Great Commission, the Great Command of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ. Here, specifically, historically, to His apostles and yet, in essence, to His church. A command that began with them and their fulfillment of it as the ones who would be the mouthpiece for the initial proclamation of the gospel and his command to us who are his people and are yet called to proclaim the same gospel to this world. Now I mentioned last week that we are called to proclaim this gospel in a world that is hostile to the truth. Now that's no surprise, that's all over scripture. It's not only a world that's hostile to the truth and the gospel, it's a world that's always been hostile to the true righteousness of God. But particularly so, this is manifested in a maybe a more intense way with the coming of Christ, who said himself, if the world hated me, do not be surprised if the world hates you, for it is indeed the message of Christ that we proclaim, it's the life of Christ that we, that we demonstrate. And we do this in a world where there's more wealth and more power in the world than we have as the church, right? God has chosen the weak things of the world. We're not the mighty of the world. We're the the lesser things, as it were, of the world. And yet, we have the greatest task before us, and that is to be God's instrument for His eternal work of building His church. And so the, the glory of it is, and particularly here in the Gospel of Matthew, is that It is Christ who gets the glory for that work and it is in his power and his strength that he will accomplish that work. We are but his servants. And he will build his church regardless of whatever resistance there is in the world. Uh, Some of you may have read this. I think somebody mentioned it yesterday at the uh, hymn sing. It was probably this same article 
it was in the news uh, last week or this week, I can't remember. But it had to do with the gospel in North Korea, of all places, which, as you may know, is listed as one of the most oppressive places in the world for Christians, according to the U.S. State Department. And yet, it's also estimated that 36% of the population, which is roughly 9 million people of North Korea, are indeed Christians. Now, I didn't remember this. I knew this in China, but the article goes on to inform that there is actually a state church in North Korea. There's a Russian Orthodox church. There's a state church or Christian church. There's even a, Muslim, uh, a, uh, a place for Islam. Uh, I blanked out on the word. Where do they worship? Mosque, thank you. There's even a mosque for Islam that they have. And of course, all of these things are for show. It's not that they truly support freedom of religion and the worship of God, but they do that uh, to put on a show for the nations. Nonetheless, there are Christians that are in the land of North Korea, and apparently uh, quite a few Christians. Let me just share with you, however, some of the plight that these dear brothers and sisters of ours suffer in this land of North Korea. The article says this, He says, uh, it is estimated that there are up to 70,000 Christian prisoners, Christian prisoners in concentration camps in North Korea. And the database center for North Korea human right conjectures that more than 75% of Christians who are dealt this fate do not survive. Defectors have spoken of Christians being crushed by steamrollers and used to test biological weapons and hung on crosses over fire. They even give an example in this article of how the government turns the children against their parents. And he gives this example of this elementary school child who was given an assignment in classroom, or children, who were given an assignment in the classroom, basically, that they were to go home to their family members and they were to uh, look for a book. Uh, And if it's a right book, the student will be honored. One student by the name of Ewan ended up finding a Bible. The article says the next day she received a prize at her school, but when Un returned home, her parents weren't there, he recalled. It's hard to imagine such cruelty that would unknowingly turn children on their parents. Of course, this is exactly what happened in the early days of the church. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen, that mother and father and daughter and children and parents all turning on each other in the face of hostility against the church or against the message of Christ. As a matter of fact, in North Korea, this article says, they are known to punish families up to three generations back. Three generations back if someone is accused of subversion against the state because of their Christian faith. And yet the article ends on this note, and this is what I want to point out. Despite efforts to eradicate Christians, we have found the church is in North Korea is actually growing. It's actually increasing. Of course, that was an amazing reality that happened in communist China. It says they know, the the believers there, only God is powerful enough to break through the darkness of the most oppressive regime, regime on earth. So that's just one illustration of many that could be given of despite the efforts of a fallen world to silence the message of Christ, the church continues to grow. People continue to get saved. Because it is not the power of man that accomplishes this task. It is the power of God. And he will, of course, bring everything that he is determined to bring to pass 
to pass, and nothing can stop that. He has all authority in heaven on earth to build his church. And it's in this confidence that we're not discouraged or we're not doubtful about our purpose or our mission in this world, even when there is little earthly encouragement to come, even when it seems that there is little fruit and, in fact, even everything against the message of Christ and the building of his church. And yet here, Christ has given us a clear mission to go in his strength, to proclaim his name among the nations, to baptize and teach his people in the truth and in the name of Christ. So this morning we're going to wrap it up looking again at verses 19 through 20. And just note two points. The, we'll spend most of the time on the first one. Namely this, simply looking at the spiritual mission that Christ has given us. And then lastly at the spiritual comforts. To begin, let's read verses 16 through 20 again for context. And then we'll look more closely at verses 19 through 20. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee... To the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we ended last week in verse 18 with that incredible statement where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that sets the stage for the command that is to follow in verses 19 through 20. And we noted that by authority, he means this, his absolute right and his absolute power over all things in the universe to bring to pass the holy will of God and God's purposes for his kingdom. Now, there is one sense in which Jesus has this authority inherently by his own nature as eternal God, as the eternal son of God. That same authority that was demonstrated in his creating all things. All things were made through him, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says. John 1 tells us that all things that have come into being came into being by him. That there's nothing that exists in this world that exists apart from Christ who spoke it into existence according to the will and the plan of the Father. And so he has this Right, he has this authority inherently as the Son. As a matter of fact, this is something that John emphasizes over and over and over, the Gospel of John. Let me just give you a few examples of this. You can read along with me, you don't have to follow. He says in John chapter 3, verse 35, that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He loves the Son and He has given all things into His hand. We noted last week in chapter 5, Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. He says again in verse 23 that all judgment has been given to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. He's been given, in a sense, here then, the power over life and the power over death. 
the power to save and the power to destroy. Verse 26, for just as the Father is life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He says in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer to the Father, we noted this before and Pastor Ted taught on this last, yesterday, or last week. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. He says in verse 7, Now they have come to know, speaking of his disciples, that everything you have given me is from you. He says in verse 10, And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He shares this glory with the Father. He inherently shares rights and authority over all of creation that he spoke into existence Because he is the son. And yet there is another sense in which he has been given this authority over all things, over heaven and earth. Because he is the son who in flesh is also the Messiah. In other words, it's an authority that he has because he is God. Because he is God the son. And at the same time, it is an authority that he receives because he is the God man who earned the right of inheritance of all things through his faithfulness and perfect obedience to the Father as Messiah in becoming incarnate, living a perfectly righteous life, dying an atoning death, and then rising from the dead, ascending back to the Father, receiving the promise of the Father of the Holy Spirit that he then sent to his people to form and establish his church. So he has this authority as the Messiah who is the God-man, to rule over all things. And it is something that he has received, an authority that he has received from his Father. Now, I want to note just one other text here. Actually, it's in Daniel chapter 7, where this authority to rule over the kingdom given to him by the Father was anticipated prophetically. And this is really, it's this, this prophetic anticipation of the kingdom that Christ is to is here uh, demonstrating in Matthew chapter 28 that Matthew is really reflecting and that Jesus is reflecting in his words and Matthew is recording for us. You remember the vision in Daniel 7 after the discussion about the nations that are going to rise, the nations that are going to fall. Ultimately, this final nation is going to come that's going to oppose God At the beginning of the revelation of Daniel, he'd established that that God is going to destroy these kingdoms like a stone that comes out of heaven and his kingdom is going to come to the earth and it is a kingdom that will never end. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet looks forward to this time of the son receiving this kingdom. And of course, again, this is in the middle of the, the revelation about these rise of all the wicked kingdoms of the earth. The most wicked one is still yet to come. That is the kingdom of the Antichrist. But he says this in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Christ is the inheritor. He is the ruler of the kingdom of this earth. He is the ultimate and only true king. Every other king who does not submit to his authority is a usurper of the glory of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has both created all things, has redeemed all things, and as Paul says in Colossians 1, is the firstborn of all creation for those very reasons, because he is creator and because he is redeemer of all things. And interestingly, and I'm only going to mention this, as he has received this kingdom from the Father, as he has received this authority from the Father to rule over this kingdom, to purchase this kingdom, to build this kingdom, he also will one day deliver it back to the Father. Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, he says, When all things are subjected to him, meaning Christ, all things subjected to him by the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And that is... Beloved, the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, which is where everything in this world is heading. So here when we come to this statement in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It is a statement of absolute omnipotent power. It is a statement that could only be made by him who is the eternal son of God, who is the Messiah, who has purchased all things, who has inherited all things, who rules over all things with the Father as the ultimate potentate, the ultimate king and the true king of heaven and of earth. And he tells his disciples this then, and he tells us as the church this, because it is in this authority that he gives his command. It's in this authority that Christ commissions us to fulfill his purposes in this world to be faithful to the gospel message because it is through that message that God accomplishes his work. Through the message of Christ. Let's look at that in verse 19. Then note the spiritual mission of the church. He says in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the essence, the the essential part of the ministry of the risen Christ. And it's namely this, that from the time of Christ's ascension to the time of Christ's return, he is gathering in all of the people whom God has given to him, all of the people that he has purchased with his blood. He's gathering in the church. He's gathering in the church. 
And he is doing that. He's accomplishing this mission of his through his people on the earth, empowered by the Spirit and faithful to the proclamation of his name. This is absolutely, this is glorious. Again, in John 17, 18, let me read it to you. He says this. Jesus, again, is praying to the Father here, but he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. He says in John 20 to his disciples, again, he says, Peace be with you after he appeared to them. As the Father has sent me, I also send you into the world. So as Christ came into the world to accomplish the mission of redemption, of salvation, he now sends his people into the world to complete that mission. He accomplished the foundation of salvation, and now we are the ones who proclaim it, and through that proclamation, he is continuing his work. We read it earlier. What was really the ultimate purpose of him having this authority? We read it in John 17. It involves judgment. It's certainly so that he can judge his enemies. It does involve that part. But ultimately, the true glory of this authority is this. So that he might give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. That's the ultimate glory of this authority. It includes judgment, but the ultimate glory of it for God is that Eternal life might be given and shared in by those who are a gift to the Son by the Father. Again, Pastor Ted brought that out very clearly last week. Let's note a few things about this mission then. First of all, note this. It is a universal mission. It is a universal mission. And this is highly significant. Notice what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Of all the nations. Now in one sense, this isn't really new, right? Where was this first anticipated in terms of covenant? It was anticipated back in Genesis chapter 12, right? The Abrahamic covenant. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you and through you, there is going to be blessing to all of the world, to all of the world. This was ultimately the end of the covenant that God made even with Abraham. Not only that he would save a particular nation, but that he would bring salvation to the world. In other words, every tribe, nation, and tongue. And maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but remember that when the Torah, when the the first five books of Moses were written, they were written by Moses to explain to the people of God who their God is, how they were formed as a nation, and what his ultimate purpose was going to be through them. And so how did he begin this covenant explanation? It's not a secret. You know this. Everybody knows this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. So in other words, the very idea of the covenant that God established with Israel was first to realize that he's not only the creator of Israel, he's not some localized God, he is the creator of all things, 
all men bear his image. And therefore, ultimately, his salvation was meant and is always intended to extend to the entire world. By virtue of his being the creator of all men, he is concerned to redeem all men. He's the God of both Jew and Gentile. Matter of fact, this is what Paul said. Let me just read this to you. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, very, very important verse. He says this, in, in verse 29, sorry. He says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God, verse 30, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. In other words, the fact that God is the Savior of all men is grounded in the fact that all men bear his image, all men were brought into existence by his power, and his redemption was ultimately intended to extend to all men. Israel was only ever supposed to be a conduit of his glory, the one through whom this salvation would come to all men. And and that was anticipated throughout the Old Testament. Even in the prophets, the ultimate anticipation is not only that Israel would be saved, but that all of the nations would come and share in and delight in the glory of their covenant God and the glory of His salvation. Isaiah 45 God says to the prophet this, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Turn to me all of the ends of the earth and be saved. Now, of course, Israel failed in that mission, ultimately because of their own sin, because of their own inverting of the covenant of God, which ultimately was to be a blessing to all of the nations. They turned that into something that was totally ethnocentric, totally Jewish-centric. You can remember the prophet Jonah, right? What did he got upset? You're going to save these wicked Ninevites? And that was really, in many ways, representative of the attitude of the nation, of the Jewish people throughout their history, as if salvation were something to be contained only within their lineage and their heritage. That was never God's design. That was never God's point. It is true, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman, that salvation is from the Jews. It's from the Jews, but it's not exclusively just for the Jews. But there is a uniqueness that they held in God's plan. As a matter of fact, again, in Matthew chapter 20, 15, 24, chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus even himself said, I was sent only to the lost house of Israel. When the gospel went out, even after the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church, Paul said in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there is a priority that the nation of Israel held, but God's ultimate end of salvation was always the salvation of the world, that the nations would be blessed. So when they hear this, however, this is a seismic shift in the way that God is working in the world. When he tells his disciples together, and as the risen Christ tells them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, this nonetheless presents this dramatic shift in the way that God is going to accomplish his salvation in the world. Namely... When you think of the Jewish nation, the idea of witness was this. God's name was located where? Not a secret. 
In, in Jerusalem, right? In Jerusalem, there I will put my holy name. There God's presence uniquely dwelled. So if you wanted to go worship God, where'd you go? You went to Jerusalem, right? You went to the temple. You went to the priests who were there. But now, with the coming of Christ, all of that has been abolished. No longer is God calling people to a place to his people where he uniquely dwells, reveals his glory. But he's calling his people to go out to the nations and declare his salvation. To be his witnesses. And of course this would happen when he would send the Holy Spirit. And then they would begin in Jerusalem and of course end up to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and what is this power going to be effective for? He says, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, the mission of the church is to be in this world, to be in the nations as a light to the world, declaring the message of the cross. Declaring the message of salvation in Christ. It's often been said, you may have heard this before, that what is, what is the reason for the church remaining on the earth? It's not to be better worshipers because we're going to do all of that stuff better in heaven. We're not going to experience perfect righteousness here. We're going to experience that more in heaven. Our delight in God and our service to God isn't perfect here, but it will be perfect in heaven. And you think, why didn't God just save his saints and then take them immediately up to heaven? Because, as Jesus says here, the church on the earth is God's means of how he is accomplishing his work of redemption. You are here if you know Christ Ultimately, yes, you worship, you obey, we gather, and all of that stuff, but ultimately, you are here on the earth to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to be a witness of God's salvation in His Son. In your families, in your workplace, in your community, each of us are here and we exist for this one purpose, to be a witness to Christ. And through that witness so that he will save those who are his. And the words of Jesus that he will draw all men unto himself. So in Christ, the great wonder here and of the gospel is that not only are we to go out into the nations, not only is our primary purpose of being here to be a witness to the message of Christ, but that we are a picture then of the universal glory of God in redeeming men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. There's no distinction for those who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, that's one of the great glories and wonders of the church, isn't it? That when you come to the church, it's made up of those of every economic status, the rich and the poor and everybody in between. It's made up of the smart and the not-so-smart and everything in between. It's made up of the attractive and the not so attractive and everybody in between. It's made up of the young. It's made up of the old. It's made up of every culture. It's made up of every kind of variety that exists on the earth. It is represented in the church. And in the church, though we are many and though there is variety, we are but one. Because we are the one children of God. 
And this is what God is doing through the church, is calling all of these children from all over into this fellowship with His Son through their witness. As a matter of fact, John says this, that when uh, the high priest that year, Caiaphas, made the, the unwitting prophecy about Jesus dying for the whole nation, John makes this comment, Now, I did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, listen, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the mission of the church. That's why we're here. So that through our witness, God is gathering into one his people and the children of God. And that is not only glorious on its own right, but it also, lately in our culture, stands in striking contradiction to what we see going on in the world, right? Charlottesville, all of these places around the world. What is the big issue? That there's division based on race. That there's this evil of separation in the world. And usually those who want to champion the cause of unity are those who are, well, in many cases, at least who get the airtime, those who are on the far left, as we would describe them politically, but those who tout this kind of acceptance of all, the same ones that want to champion the cause of acceptance are also the ones who want to persecute a first grader for calling a she a she and not a he because they've decided to identify as something different. In other words, it is a kind of unity that's marked by unrighteousness. But in the church, we have this true unity that is in Christ. We are made up of people from every background, every culture, and every race, and yet we are in Christ one, participants in His life by grace and by faith in the Son. So the great glory of the church is that as we witness to Christ in the world, that people from all over the world come to the saving knowledge of the Son that we form the one people of God and that we glorify Him, therefore, on the earth as the people of God. It anticipates, really, this going out into the, all the nations, heaven. Have Revelation 5, where it says, Worthy are you to take the book, break its seals, you were slain, purchased God, purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's the ultimate end of this. Go into all of the nations. Why? Because I have people in all of the nations. I have children in all of the nations. You don't know who they are, but you need to go find them is basically what he's saying. You need to go find them. You need to be faithful to the message. And then I will reveal them as they come to a saving knowledge of my son. So it's a universal message, uh, mission. It's also a certain mission. And I'm going to go a little quicker here. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Now, you've probably heard a lot of missions messages, and and some of you are already familiar with this, where the idea of go is treated as the main verb, as it were, the main command. Go, 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 go into the nations, you know, go into the unreached people groups and all of that. And that, that, of course, is essential, and that is important. And that is, in fact, here, even... 
in the way that this is put together in the grammar, it has the force of a command, but the way that it works and what Christ is saying here is that the going into the nation is an assumed reality. In other words, the church understands that God can only gather in those who are scattered abroad into one when the church is in those places that are abroad being faithful to the witness there. And so he raises up people. In other words, we can't call in God's children from North Korea or China or wherever if he doesn't have the gospel there. And so when he says here there, go, therefore, go into the nations is the assumed condition, but the command specifically that we are given is to make disciples, to make disciples. And that poses, however, a certain problem in one sense. Why? And again, I'm only going to mention this briefly. Because who is a disciple? Who is a disciple? A disciple is one who has been born again, who experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. A disciple is one who follows Christ, who obeys Him. A disciple of one who has exercised repentant faith in Christ. A disciple is one who you know is a learner, but is a learner and a lover of Christ and who follows Him. And yet the problem is this. That that is something that's completely outside of our power to do. Completely outside of our power to do. Matter of fact, Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things have been handed over to me by my Father, reflecting the same language of chapter 28. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so what is the mystery here? What is the problem? The mystery is this, is that God commands us as the church to go and make disciples of all of the nations, and yet the task He sends us to do is completely outside of our power to do. Completely outside of our ability. We don't make disciples of anybody. We simply proclaim the word. And then as they come... We teach them and we train them and we baptize them, as you'll say later. But he's given us a task to do. This is what I want us to notice. He's given us a task to do that only he can accomplish. That only he can accomplish. So on one side, we have confidence because he who has all authority has given us this task. And so the fact that the church will be built is certain. In other words, Christ will save Every single last person who was given to him by the Father. There is not one soul, one life who's ever come into existence who will be finally lost whom the Father gave to the Son as a love gift. There is no one for whom Christ died who will be lost and who will suffer eternally the consequences of their sin. Nobody. Jesus said this in John 6, you remember? All, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me. So in other words, God's salvation of his people, calling forth his disciples in the nations, is something that's absolutely certain, right? Right? Absolutely certain. There's not even the slightest, not even the smallest, not even the most minuscule possibility that anyone for whom Christ died will not hear the message of Christ and be saved. Nobody, not even one, not even one. And so in that sense, 
The mission is certain, but from our side, it's uncertain in this way that we don't know specifically who will be saved. We don't know where the gospel will be fruitful. We don't know where it will be met with rejection and where it will be met with suffering. And so in our experience, we experience a measure of sorrow, frustration, sometimes discouragement in which it seems that we're faithful and we're faithful and we're faithful to the message and there's little return on our efforts. Some of you I know have shared that you're witness to so many people and yet over such a period of time and have seen almost nobody come to faith in Christ. Sometimes missionaries go into lands and they give their whole lives being faithful to the mission, being faithful to the gospel of Christ and they see little to no fruit in their ministry. Sometimes it's not until the next generation that they say fruit. Sometimes they may see fruit, but it's going to be years and years in the making. So from God's side, it's absolutely certain. From our side, it's not always certain that our efforts will bear fruit. He may never let us see that, but we have confidence in this, that God will save all those who are His. That as we go into the nations in faithfulness with the message, God will bear the fruit in that message that He's designed that he's designed. And so what is our task as the church? To be faithful, right? To simply be faithful to the message. To simply be faithful to the message. You've often heard it said that wouldn't it be nice if you went out into the world and every elect person had an E on the back of their forehead or something. Now it'd be a little awkward to ask them to see it. But nonetheless, that would make it so much more simple for us If everybody, if we knew who were these children that God was going to call, we wouldn't waste our time and effort on money and all of these fruitless kind of endeavors, right? We'd just go find them all, check who they are, give them the gospel, let them be saved, and then they would come to faith in Christ, and there it is, the church would be formed. But it's not like that. God has ordained that this message would go out with much discouragement from our side, much need to trust Him from our side, Much suffering and disappointment from our side. Paul summed it up perfectly in this way in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. We won't turn there for time's sake, but you'll remember when Paul was going around, he was on his missionary journey. He was being bouncing around and the Lord kept, it says in Acts 16, that God kept shutting a door, wouldn't let him go into these different regions. And then he saw the vision. Remember this, the Macedonian vision, the person in a dream saying, come, come over here, help us, help us. Paul goes into Macedonia. The first person he meets, Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. She was saved. He goes into Corinth. He preaches Christ crucified. The Jews thought it was a stumbling block. The Greeks thought it was foolishness. But what? The weak and the called of those in Corinth were saved. And that's how it goes. God shuts the door in some areas. He's kept some areas blind for years and decades. Some parts and regions of the world who have never had a gospel witness. God somehow keeps the message out. And then you have other places like North Korea and China where they try to shut the message out, but they can't. Somehow it gets in, the gospel gets in and it bears this fruit. And it's like that small little mustard seed that goes there and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. God is always working in mysterious ways. 
Sometimes it's with rejection and disappointment. Sometimes it seems with fruitfulness. At other times, it's with great power. And you think of the great awakening in our own country where the gospel went out and whole hundreds and hundreds and upon thousands were saved and there was this great awakening. So God works in mysterious ways. But we need to simply know that whether we're in a time of frustration or whether we're discouragement, that we can have the confidence. And why Christ says this is that his purposes will be successful. They will be successful. It is a certain mission. It is not an uncertain mission. And it's a clear mission. Listen to what he says. This is how we're to fulfill it. He says we're to make disciples, make disciples, And baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. So it's a certain mission, universal mission, it's a certain mission, and it's a clear mission. This is what we are to do. First of all, we're to baptize believers. Baptize believers. Now, there's two baptisms mentioned in the Holy Spirit related, I mean, in the Holy Spirit, in Scripture, uh, which was given to us by the Holy Spirit. Um, that are related to salvation. The first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Christ said, John baptized in water, but I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's been the beginning of Acts. He told his disciples, not soon from now, you are going to experience what I promised, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's referring to here. He's referring here to the act of baptism. Of course, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that God does. It is a sovereign work of God. This is what the church is to do. We are to baptize believers who have professed faith in Christ. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church is called to not only go into the nations to proclaim the message, but then to bear witness to the saving work of God through baptism. It's a public witness by being immersed in water as a symbol of union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Baptism is an ordained sign. And I would simply want to make this one passing comment here. To be a believer in Christ, therefore, and not to be baptized is disobedience. It's sin. You might know of some, I know of some in your own families who treat baptism as if it were just an option, as if it's something that we might do when we get around to it. But the very mission of the church and the great commission of Christ is here, is that the church is to be baptizing believers, and conversely, if you are a believer in Christ, that you are to be baptized. This is an extremely significant ministry of the church and an extremely important act of obedience by those who belong to Christ. As a matter of fact, there are times in Scripture, because of its significance, where baptism and salvation are spoken of almost synonymously. Listen to what he says in verse 16 of Mark 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Of course, there he's making the issue of salvation belief. There is the one who has believed and the one who has disbelieved. But the very first evidence of saving faith in Christ for a true disciple is to be baptized and publicly bear witness to identification with the name of Jesus Christ. 
Here, in the very commission of the church then, is he gives this command to be baptizing those who are truly belonging to Christ. You'll remember the very first act of obedience, of repentant faith, that was proclaimed in the first preaching of the gospel in Acts 2.32 was repent and be baptized each of you for the forgiveness of sin. For the forgiveness of sin. So if a person is truly trusted in Christ, then you are commanded to be baptized. To be baptized. I know some are working through that process right now, even among us. Some of you have other family members who are neglecting that. Some of you have been wondering, maybe should I be baptized? I was baptized and sprinkled as a baby, or I was baptized early, but I'm not sure that I was saved then. Do I need to get baptized again? And the answer is simply this. If you have not borne witness to a genuine work of saving grace in your life as a believer, if you have not borne witness to that, in the waters of baptism, then it is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ to you to be baptized in the name of Christ, to give testimony to his saving work to you in salvation, and in doing so, identifying yourself publicly with the people of God, the institution of the church. But there's more to that. than that. That's part of it. That's significant. But there's something more that he's talking about here. He's really identifying as well in this baptism, in this discipleship in which there's this public witness in the waters of baptism to the fellowship that we enter into with the Godhead. To the fellowship we enter into. Baptism marks not only identification, but it marks in that identification with Christ that we have participated in, we share in this eternal and divine fellowship of the Godhead, which is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Note what he says here. It is one baptism and it's into the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead identified in that one name, emphasized the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These are not different ways of referring to different expressions of God. That's called modalism. It's not three separate gods. That's called tritheism. It is the one God who is revealed in the three persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to go on a Trinitarian explanation, but understand this, that this was absolutely earth-shattering when this message was going out. What was absolutely essential to the Jew? Our God is one. Our God is one, right? We have one God. He is to be worshipped. What is a central tenet of Islam? God is one. Allah, right? In their mind. Of Judaism today, what is essential? That there is one God. By using the singular here, name, he is affirming, in fact... There is only one God, but what is distinct among the Christian understanding of God and the revelation of God in Christ is that this one God, this one eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, all-glorious, all-authoritative God is, in fact, three persons. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
And to be baptized into the name of Christ is to be baptized into the name of this, then the reality of this eternal fellowship of the three persons of the Godhead. What was just explosive to the understanding of God to the first century church after the appearance of Christ is that this one God is in fact a plurality. In fact, that God has eternally existed in fellowship with himself as three persons. That the Son has come and revealed in the most clear and glorious way these three persons in their work of redemption. And that through the Son... Those who are believers in Jesus Christ not only are forgiven of their sin, but they're reconciled to God and brought in to share, to share in this eternal relationship of the Godhead. And it also means this, and this is important to understand as well, that there is no then right worship of God outside from recognizing that simple fact. Simple in terms of its proclamation, not necessarily in understanding it, of course. But is this, if there is not a right recognition of God as being one God and existing in three persons, then there is no salvation. God cannot be conceived of. He cannot be worshipped. If he is thought of as anything less than being the Father in relationship to the Son, the Son in relationship to the Father, and the Spirit in relationship to the Father and the Son. Is belief in the Trinity essential to salvation? And the answer to that is, yes, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I've worked with one guy for years who was a great guy, supposedly stood for all things Christian. He was a modalist. He absolutely denied that Christ was a person of the Trinity equally and fully God, simply that he was a particular revelation of God at that moment. But that is not what is here being proclaimed. When we proclaim God, we proclaim God who is three. That he is God the Father, that he is God the Son, that he is God the Spirit. And if there is not faith in that God who has revealed himself in Christ, then there is no salvation. There is no salvation. Because it's a different God. It's a different God being worshipped. So this idea of being baptized then is much more than simply going through an act. It is a public identification with Christ that in many cases can cost you your life. It is identification with the very Godhead of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, saying that there is participation of fellowship with Him. It is the one God who is is and who's revealed Himself in Christ. Now there's more to say, but let me go to the last one here. The church then is to proclaim a true message about Christ And the church then is to baptize those who express faith in Christ and the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, identifying with Him. And the church then is to teach. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Of course, teaching was essential to the ministry of Jesus. It was essential to His revealing the Father, revealing the reality of the new covenant, Revealing what was to be believed about God. Confronting error. Leading his people into the truth. And it's the same thing with the ministry of his church. We carry on the teaching ministry of Christ to his people. Our teaching ministry as the church. Training up disciples in the truth. Is an extension of the ministry of Christ himself 
to his people. In other words, we are simply mouthpieces for the Lord. We're simply mouthpieces for Christ. It's not an option that we have. And I just as a footnote here, want to know that we might take that as granted, but that is not understood in many large sections of the church. In other words, very often this great commission is almost exclusively centered in the fact that we simply proclaim the gospel, right? We simply proclaim the gospel, that evangelism is the single most, almost exclusively in many cases, the mission of the church. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Evangelism is assumed, it is primary, but the church is also then to take these disciples and to teach them and to train them up in the knowledge of God and in His Word. Teaching them not only the milk things of salvation, but also the meat things of salvation. In other words, teaching and doctrine is an essential ministry of the church. It's an essential ministry of the church. I knew in the seminary that I attended, it was very, very often heard from brothers who were saved, some at a young age, and and were legitimately saved, but they simply lived a life of immaturity and confusion because they were in churches that all they did was preach the gospel every single week and get saved every single week. Some people got saved, you know, 30, 40 times in their lifetime. I mean, really only once. But in their experience, they kept going down, giving their life to Jesus because the churches that they were in misunderstood the fullness of the Great Commission. It's not simply to get saved, but the church is also to teach. How much does the church, even today, as it has suffered this in different times throughout its history, has suffered and is weak because there is a lack of discernment, because there is not a teaching ministry within the church? It's all about doing good, being a nice neighbor. In the the fancy words, you may have heard of this or phrase that it's this moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, it's all of this superficial realities or superficial aspects of the gospel and never really causing people to understand the deeper things about the glory of God and salvation. And it produces a bunch of immature and weak Christians. The Word of God has always been central of how He communicates His will to His people. It was, of course, throughout the Old Testament. We won't go through all of that. Uh, But throughout the Old Testament, God revealed His covenant to His people. They were beholden to that covenant. When they were failed to be obedient to the written Word of God, it brought destruction and moral decay and spiritual decay among His people. You think of uh, Josiah when they found the law after some years of... Uh, just really apostasy. He found the law. He immediately began putting into place all of the things that God commanded him, understanding that their disobedience would bring judgment. But the word of God was central to the life of the people, and so it is in the new covenant. It's no different. It's only that now this word centers on the message of Jesus Christ, and it is, in fact, the word of Christ. Remember Hebrews 1? God spoke in many manners, many ways, visions, so on and so forth. But in these last days, how has he spoken to us? He's spoken to us in a son. You remember when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah were there. Peter foolishly wanted to build three tabernacles, but the father called them aside and he said, No, what did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
So Christ is how is one who reveals to his church his will as Lord. And he doesn't speak to the church in mystical impressions, private revelations. He speaks to his church through the written word of God, through Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. It is this word, this written word, that God leads his church. Now, many of us, of course, understand that. We're committed to it. That's why we're here in this church is because there is a trust and a commitment to that very reality. But let me make the statement nonetheless that when the church fails to, in this mission of teaching, of training up in the word of God, this is essentially what happens. The church silences Christ's word to his people. We simply make Christ mute. We put tape over his mouth, as it were, and we don't let him speak to his people. Teaching the word of God, teaching disciples the truth about Christ, how to understand his word, to love his word, and to grow in his word is an essential ministry of the church. And as much as the church and we aren't faithful to do that, we silence the voice of Christ. He can't speak to his people. They can't learn from him. They can't hear his voice. They can't receive his instruction. So teaching is an essential ministry of the church. Let me note just briefly this. It's also then submission to that teaching is essential reality of discipleship. Discipleship is marked by obedience. It's marked by obedience. I'll sum up in these words of Jesus. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Exactly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does it mean? We mentioned last night when we were together that the spiritual life can be boiled down to this. Love for Jesus Christ, for who he is and what he has done. And love for Jesus Christ is in its most basic and profound sense demonstrated in this reality. That he speaks and we obey. That we follow him with our lives. That he is the Lord and we are the slaves. That he is the master. That he is God and we are the redeemed. And we love to know him and we serve him and we follow him. That is the essence of spiritual life right there. that is far beyond our means to accomplish, but that is guaranteed by his own sovereign purposes and glory and power. He's given us the mission to make disciples, to baptize them, to declare the truth of his name, to teach them to observe everything that he's commanded. And then he gives this. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as throughout, this is another, as in every verse here, Affirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will be with his people. And this really wraps up what Matthew stated at the very beginning of his gospel was the purpose of Jesus' coming. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated what? God with us. God with us. 
Christ is God with us. Throughout the Old Testament, the great glory and strength and power and hope of his people was what? That God's presence would be with them. When he put the tabernacle in the midst here, he gave the tabernacle to his people, this was the great glory, that God will dwell among them. In the temple, the great glory was that God's presence was there. Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with me, then don't lead us out from here. Joshua, God gave the promise, I will strengthen and encourage you. I will be with you. My presence will be with you as I send you out to accomplish this thing that you cannot do, but that I will do through you. And so it is to the church. And here again is the amazing thing. Throughout the Old Testament, the great promise was that God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the creator and redeemer of his people, is the one who would be with his people. And now that is all centered on Christ. Christ, who says, I will be with you. I, your God, as Thomas proclaimed, will be with you. I will strengthen you. And again, this shows the divine nature of Christ and the incarnation. Christ physically is in heaven. He's not physically with us. In his humanity, he cannot be. He can only be in one place at one time. But in his deity as the Son, he is, through the Spirit, in an impersonal relationship with every single child who is his. He will physically return. So in one say, he can say, until the end of the age, that is when I return. But until I return physically, I'm also with you spiritually forever. Forever. To strengthen you, to uphold you, to guide you. And here then is the comfort that we have. That we're not commissioned to this task alone. We are not left to ourselves. And this promise then is to be our great encouragement. And ultimately, it has been the encouragement of God's people throughout. Let me end with this. There's... So much I had to say about that, but let me end with this. Until the end of the age, until the end of the age, and literally until all the day, all the days until the completion of the age, if you were to take it just word for word. But the idea is until the end of the age, until the end of the age. He mentions this exact phrase uh, three other times in Matthew, all of it referring to when he returns to execute judgment on the wicked, to remove them in Matthew 13 out of the earth and to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so ultimately then, this points us to the end of his purposes. We get a foretaste of this in the millennial kingdom when he will establish it. There will be a rejuvenated earth. He will be on the earth as King David on the throne of David, ruling over his people for a thousand years. But ultimately, even that is only a foretaste of the greater reality of our redemption, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And here then, the promises to the church of his presence, his protection his blessing, and our mission. And the ultimate end is that we would come to the end of the age and we would hopefully be able to say or hear from the Lord, well done, you good and you faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And Christ who gives us this mission, Christ who has all authority to accomplish this mission through us is also the one who is near us to strengthen us day by day through faith in his promises for his everlasting glory. Tremendous, tremendous promises. And we are finished with the Gospel of Matthew. And may we take these instructions and as a church and as individuals who belong to Christ and be faithful to this mission 
until the end. Mike, if you would come and lead us into the one closing hymn, and then just I'm going to let him close us in prayer. And Danielle. It's crown him with many crowns, the first and the last verse. So if you know that where it is in your hymn book, go ahead and turn there. 234. There it is, 234. First and last stanza, 234. Please stand. Let me sing. Two thirty four. Crown. 